going to church here. <laughs> I just love it. Ah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for all that those who've gone before us here in this service have done to honor our King, the Lord Jesus. Do you know the King Jesus? Do you know what this uh, fanfare is all about here? You get this? Does this, does this make sense to you? What a king that Jesus is. Do you know Jesus, the king? In order to honor the king, the Lord Jesus, this Palm Sunday, I want to direct your attention to one of the fascinating stories of King Jesus himself. It's found in Luke chapter 19. So open your Bible to Luke chapter 19 this morning. It is the part of the Bible that has one of the records of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus, the palm that we commemorate on Palm Sunday. It has some other interesting things in it too, including this fascinating story that Jesus told about the parable of the minas, also pronounced minas, also pronounced minas, depending on who you listen to. I'm going to go with minas today. The parable of the minas. Three things help you understand the story. Let's read it, and then I want to tell you the three stories that will help you understand this story. And when we come to the end, it should be ringing in our hearts. Do you know this king? Is there evidence in your life that you really know this king, that you honor this king, that this king is your king? That's what we're going to be talking about here today. Let's just read this story. It starts in Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. Luke chapter 19, the story is found in verses 11 through 27. Let's look in our Bibles. Now as they heard these things, that was the things that Jesus had said to Zacchaeus, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country, to receive for himself a kingdom, and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to to reign over us. And so it was. That when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, and that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And likewise, he said, you will be over five cities. And then another came. And then another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I've kept away, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him. Give it to him who has ten minas. 
But they said, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, that to everyone who has, has will be given, and from him who does not have, even that which he has will be taken away from him. Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the absolute truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that it has been preserved to us today, that we could know your mind, that we could understand what a wonderful and benevolent and powerful and holy king you are. And even now, Lord, as I preach through this story, do a miraculous work in the hearts of people who are your enemies, that they would see what a wonderful king you are and how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to oppose you. Do, I pray, a work in the lives of people who are, think they are your friends and they're really not, and they don't regard you and they don't love you, but they, but they think they are your friends. Show them that's not true. Show them, Lord where they stand with you, and encourage those who are faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you understand this story? Three things help you understand the story. The story that goes before it, if you allow me to put it this way, the story that goes after it, and the story that's behind it. story that goes before it, the story that comes after it, and the story that's behind it will help you understand this story and will come to a sharp point in your heart. What is the story that goes before it? It's the story of Zacchaeus. And if you have spent any time in Sunday school, then you've heard the story of Zacchaeus, this tax collector, this, this despised tax collector, this, this little rip-off artist who for some reason had interest when Jesus came through Jericho, he wanted to see him, and of course we know he climbed a maple tree. I've just seen if you're awake. We, we know it was a sycamore tree. Yes, he climbed the tree to see him. And, and we know that Jesus came to his house, and he visited him with salvation that day. Conversion. Zacchaeus, this, this guy who was despised, this short, despised guy. You guys ever hear that song, Short People Got Nobody to Love? You want me to sing it for you? You want to pay me not to sing it for you? I had a little short roommate at Moody, and he came in the room with that, singing that song, Short People Got Nobody to Love. They, they, have little car, they, they have little hands, they have little feet, they drive little cars that go beep, beep, beep. Did you hear that? You want me to sing it? Short people got, yeah. And it's a funny song. Zacchaeus, um, Zacchaeus wanted to see what Jesus was Jesus visited his house. Jesus brought Zacchaeus to repentance and restoration. And, and Jesus' salvation, deliverance, visited this guy personally that day. Jesus went to, that's amazing. That's a wonderful story. And this is what it says. And Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Them are fighting words, by the way. He also is a son of Abraham. He's in. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said, Jesus said, salvation has come today, and people hear what they want to hear. Am I right? We all hear what we want to hear. And these people, they're, they're biased. They couldn't, they couldn't 
look, they couldn't see outside the box. Their bias was, hey, did you hear him say that? Did you hear him say, today is deliverance day? Did you hear Jesus say today he's going to deliver us? He's going to deliver us all today? The, the, the Savior is here. He's going he's gonna, to, you know, time is over now that, the, that Rome is going to oppress and these people are going to just kill us at a whim. The Deliverer is here. That's not what he, what he said. He says salvation, soul deliverance had come to Zacchaeus' house that day. And so Jesus needed to correct what they were thinking because they thought the kingdom was coming immediately and the, and the literal kingdom was not coming immediately. It's interesting to me that he needed to correct us, and I want to spend a lot of time here, but sometimes we tend to think this way. Fundamental Bible-believing pastors are Bible teachers. They're not storytellers, you know? And then, and then o- over here you got those people that they really aren't serious about the Bible. They just tell these little candy apple stories. Well, you kind of know I don't agree with that. Jesus Christ... In order to correct this really serious error, he told them a story. And we're going to have, toward the end of summer and throughout the fall, all the way up to uh, Christmas time, Lord, if the Lord should allow us, if he should tarry, is coming and give us health and the ability to do this. We're going to be in a series of messages on the stories of Jesus. But this is kind of like a little appetizer for that because it's Palm Sunday and, and I felt led of the Lord to, to tell this story. Jesus told the story and the purpose is clearly stated here. He's telling the story because they thought the kingdom would come immediately and he was using the story to correct this misinformation. And there's something that's sort of subtly hidden behind it too. He's also telling the story to correct a misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. They, can, they tended to think of a, of a sweeping, kind of military conquering and, 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 an, and a reordering of things in that way. And Jesus was saying, no, 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 the kingdom's going to be different than that, and the subjects of the kingdom are different than that, and loyalty to the king looks different than what you think. And so he tells this story, and in the story there are three different groups of people, very common in the stories of Jesus, groups of three Maybe that's one of the reasons why pastors often have three-point messages. They're Trinitarian, you know, something about our minds. A human mind craves that kind of order. Jesus operated this way. He said, there were these who were the genuine, the genuine faithful. And they were given this, when the king went away and he was going to come back, they were given this stewardship. And then there were those who said they were faithful, but they really weren't. And then there were those who openly from the beginning to the end were the enemies and how he dealt with them. There was a story then before was the story of Zacchaeus. The story afterward is the triumphal entry. The story afterward isn't really a story. It's a biblical narrative there that tells about Jesus Christ. He's going from Jericho. He spent some time in Jericho. He'd healed before that. He, He brought salvation to Zacchaeus. Throughout the book of Luke from early on, he keeps saying he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission. He's not too busy to stop and help broken, blind, sinful people all around him. But he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going there to do something very significant. He's set himself to go to Jerusalem. And over and over again, Luke repeats, Jesus is on a mission. He's going to get to Jerusalem. On the way here, he brings salvation to Zacchaeus. He teaches a lesson to people if they're paying attention about who Zacchaeus is. And then he tells this story, but then it's going to be the, 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 the journey to Jerusalem, um, a, a, around the Mount of Olives, and then the triumphal entry this, uh, into Jerusalem. And that's the, 
story that's given, and there are points of comparison in the story of his coming to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and this story. And there are three of them. I want to point them out. One, Jesus is acclaimed as king. And he's the gospel author who does that is Luke. And from the point that he acclaims the Lord Jesus as king, he calls him king here in Luke chapter 19. He continues to carry that out. He's the one who says Jesus is the king. And there is the king in the story, isn't there? There's another thing, another point of comparison in verses 41 through 44. You have this pathetic spot where there's this triumphal entry. And verses 41 through 44 is when Jesus is coming along and everybody is shouting and everyone is praising. Little children are shouting and the palm branches and coats are going down in front of Jesus. And he sees Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he, Jerusalem falls out in front of him down and he sees it. And he be, the Bible says he starts this loud weeping at this point. That's in verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you one stone upon another, because you, because you did not know that your king was here, you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't understand that the king was here. Jesus is able to foresee this horrific fall of Jerusalem, AD 70 and beyond. He's able to see that. And so while everybody else is celebrating, he's just weeping. And there is a point of congruity there with that story and the story that we're going to tell. There's a part in the story that we're going to tell that we just read that we're that we, there's, a, there's a part in that story that's like that. And there's a third part that's like that. In verse 47, the attitude of the leaders rejecting Jesus' authority. He was teaching daily in the temple, but, chief pre, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. They were unable to do anything for all the people who were very attentive to hear him. The, the only reason they didn't kill him is because it would have been unpopular to kill him. Otherwise, they would have killed him. They did not like... That people, Jesus cutting into their religious turf at all. They were jealous. They were envious of him. We have a story before it, the story of Zacchaeus. We have a story after the story of the triumphal entry. What's the story behind it? It's really interesting because when you read this story, you, there are some mysteries in it. Why is a king called a king and then he has to go away and get a kingdom and come back? To us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You're either the king or you're not the king. You go to another country to get your kingdom? Why do you go to another country to get your kingdom? Why, don't you just, why aren't you just the king? Aren't you born a king? Are you just the king? Because you were born a king and you reign right there? This, was, this had its roots in, in the history of the time. It had its roots in the geography of the time. Jesus had just made his way through Je- Jericho. There was Herod who called himself Herod the Great. And when he died, he left instructions that his sons were to divide up the kingdom. One of them, Archelaus, was to have the Judean part of the kingdom. In order to be named the king, because Rome was in charge, you had to go to Rome and say, is it okay for me to be the ethnarch or the king, small k? Can I rule? You had to go get permission to rule. And then after you got permission to rule, you came back. Well, when Archelaus went to Rome to get permission to be the ruler that his father had kind of passed down to him, a group of Jews followed him because he was severe and they, they protested him being the king. So we don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this man to be the king. And yet he was named the king. And then he did come back. And then he ruled. And so when Jesus was at this place in the road in Jericho and so forth, it would have been, 
there was evidence of Archelaus' rule, which had shortly ended before. There was evidence of that around them. This was in the minds of the people, and it makes the story make a lot of sense. Jesus said, I, he's kind of saying, I have, I'm a man of noble birth. And what's going to happen is when Jesus dies and he's buried, and he rises again, and he ascends into heaven, the Father is going to crown him the king. Seated on the right hand of the Father, he is the king. Psalm 110, Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, he he has the kingdom affirmed to him. And he says, and I am going to come back someday, and I am going to see who's loyal to me while I'm gone. The king is going to return, and the king then is going to establish the literal kingdom, and there will be judgments and rewards at that time. And those that were faithful to the Lord, faithful to what he gave them, they will be honored, they will be rewarded, they will be given greater opportunities to serve the king and to serve the kingdom. But those who are faking, they're not going to have any part in the kingdom. They're not going to have any part in the kingdom. Even what they had, the little little whisper of hope they had to be a part of the kingdom, that's going to be taken away from them. And the enemies, the ones who opposed the, the king and said, he will not be my king, they will be destroyed with a sudden and severe destruction. That's what the story is telling us. In this story, all are the citizens of Christ's kingdom in the broad sense. In other words, Jesus is king over everything. People who believe him, He's under, they are under his authority. People who don't believe him, they are under his authority. People who oppose him, they are under his authority. Everybody is under his authority, citizens in that sense. And there are the faithful servants, these three groups. Verses 15 through 19, faithful servants. And, they, and they're two different kind of groups of faithful servants, some that are especially faithful in the stewardship that he's given to them. They, the, the scriptures say here... Um, in verse 14, but his citizens hated him. And that's probably a very significant phrase. His citizens hated him, and by implication, it was the others who cared for him, they who loved him, who knew who he was. One group hated the king, and the other group appreciated the king. The other group loved the king. Even in his absence, they worked for the progress of the kingdom, even when he was not there, looking forward to the day when the king would come back and they would say, look what we were able to do because of our love for you, because of our loyalty to you. Look what we were able to do while you were gone. We truly know you. We truly appreciate you. We truly love you. We don't despise you. We don't despise a throne. We're not just making noise. We're not just talking as if we know you and sitting on our hands while you're gone. These were the faithful servants. I love what I stumbled across this from Spurgeon and I always love being able to do this knowing you're going to have something valuable Can you hear the chorus of the angels echoing through the corridors of eternity? Lift up your head so you gates and be lifted up ye ancient doors the king of glory is coming in Who is the king of glory? It's the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Psalm 24. This is the chorus in heaven. When the angels saw Jesus coming resurrected, the Son of God, the King of kings, this is the chorus. Open up the gates. The King of glory is coming in. What an awesome thing that must have been. Here's how Spurgeon describes it. Behold, angels. Gazing from the battlements of heaven, replying to their comrades who escort the ascending Son of Man, who is the King of glory. And this time, 
Those who accompany the Master sing more sweetly and more loudly than ever before while they cry, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The King of glory is coming in. Behold Him as He rides in triumph through heaven's streets. See death and hell bound at His chariot wheels. Hark the hosannas of the spirits of the just who are made perfect here. How this cherubim and seraphim roll out thunders in their everlasting song. Glory be unto Thee. Glory unto Thee, Thou Son of God. For Thou was slain and hast redeemed the world by Thy blood. See Him as He mounts His throne. Near His Father He sits. Hear him as he ascends him and gives him a name which is above every name. And I say, my brethren, in the midst of your tremblings and the midst of your doubtings and fears, anticipate the joy which you will have when you will share in his triumph. For know you not that you ascend up on high with him. He went not up to heaven alone, but as the representative of all the blood-bought throng, Jesus went up to the throne. You rode in that triumphal chariot with Him. You were exalted on high and made to sit far above principalities and powers in Him. For we were risen with Him, exalted in Christ. Even at this very day in Christ, that psalm is true, Thou hast put all things under His feet. Thou madest Him to have dominion over all the works of Thy hands. Come, you poor trembler. Thou art little in Thine own esteem and a worm in no man. But rise, I say, to the height of Thy nobility. For Thou art in Christ greater than angels, more magnified and glorified by far. God gives you grace, ye who have faith, that ye may now, in the fact of Jesus Christ's exaltation, find great consolation for yourself. Does that make anybody else's heart beat fast? Is it just me? To think that Jesus has said that He is the King, and we in a mystery that we don't understand, that are in Christ, are seated with Him. He is our King, and we are in His kingdom what are we now to do but to be faithful with whatever he has given our hands to do in order that we would enhance the kingdom of god and forward the kingdom of god and build the kingdom of god to be found faithful when he returns but there are false servants and it starts there in verse 20 and then another came a significant word there another heteros it's a different kind of person who is he talking about here is he talking about the jews is he, is he, and this is not uncommon in the stories of Jesus' appeal to the Jews. Don't you realize how you have been given these great privileges? This could be so easily applied to many who sit in these pews today. You have been given great privileges to understand the riches of God, but are they really yours? Are they really yours? Does your own... Do tears swarm in your eyes when you think about the loyalty to the king? Does your heart really have within it a great loyalty and love? Are you personally, is there evidence in your life that you are not sitting on your hands, taking what he's given you, putting it in a handkerchief, disregarding, misunderstanding his character? These Jewish people, they, they had a kind of a religion going on. And so they just saw in abject fear this, this austere man. He's just going to... He, and and they, they, they maligned the character of the king is what they did. They said he was what he wasn't like. They were religious types. They were legalist types. They were the ones who said, it's all really about what you, uh, what you do. It's not really about the, the, um, the benevolence or the, or the king, the, the love for the king. This is what it says about them. Verse 20, then another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept, put away, in her handkerchief, he, they didn't even bury it in the ground. It was as if they just disregarded it. 
these are not believers. They're not describing believers here. This passage is not describing believers here. I don't believe that. They were given truth, but they didn't have a love or understanding of the king, and they did not invest. At very best, they were neutral. And then there were those who were evil. The enemies, verse 27, bring here those enemies of mine when the king returns. He says, bring the ones who said, I will not have this man rule over me. Bring them here who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Can you fast forward the tape of your mind to Revelation 19 and see the king of glory coming uh, and, and, the, and, and what will happen there. This is not something that we should take the edges off of. Jesus is not someone that we put on a shelf and we get Him down whenever we want a little help. Jesus is not something we pop as an additive into our diet. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You may think... You may sit here and you may think, well, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll say this and I'll do that and I'll wear this and I'll watch that and I'll read this. You may say that, but what does your king say to you? He's the king. He's in charge. He's in control. You owe him your loyalty. You don't answer for yourself. You answer to the king. You don't answer to your pastor, the deacons. You answer to the king. So what does the king say about how you live your life? What does the king say about what you post on the internet? What does the king say about the way that you talk when you're not around people? What does the king say about how you've taken the things that he's given you and you've done nothing with them? How can you call yourself a person who understands the king if none of this is really meaningful to you? And the Bible says about the enemies, the Bible says that the enemies he will slay, this ought to cause us to redouble our missionary efforts to save people from what is about to happen. This ought to make us weep when everyone else is laughing like Jesus when he saw Jerusalem. When we look at the multitudes of people, we should not see people that are watching a basketball game. We should see souls Souls that will have an eternal destiny in heaven with God or in hell in eternal destruction. We shouldn't look at our family members like this one drives a nice car, that one has a pretty form. We should look at our family members like this. Do they know the king? Do they love the king? Will they be with us in the kingdom? And we should examine ourselves in that very same way. It's a horrifying thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Our God is a consuming fire. There are many, many passages of scripture that talk about how severe it is to not realize who the king is or to say, I will be my own king. Second Thessalonians is one of them, chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You say, Pastor, are you a hellfire and damnation preacher? Well, let's see. Is there hellfire in the Bible? Yes. Is there damnation in the Bible? Well, what other kind of preacher is there? A preacher that only tells you half of what Jesus said? How can you say before a holy God, I was faithful to you, God, but I only said the parts I liked. How can you say that you faithfully represented Jesus Christ if you didn't warn people that there really is a hell to avoid and a heaven to gain and that there's a possibility of a very painful eternity for people who reject Jesus Christ? How can you sit here week after week after week, hear people sing and spill out the riches of God and churn and not say that you're wicked against the holy God? 
How can you walk away and say, I'll decide when I'll decide, and not say that you're a wicked rebel against God? What if your life ends today? What if your life ends tomorrow, and you stand before God? It won't matter the kind of lame excuses you had. You either really did value the king, and you knew the king, or you didn't. It won't matter then. It won't matter then what you say. Your arguments won't mean anything in front of the king. The enemies will be slain. So what does this mean to us? What group are you in? Every one of you are in one of those three groups. When Jesus returns, then we will know who's who. That's what Jesus was saying in this story. He's saying the kingdom is, there's a spiritual kingdom, it's now. There's a literal and physical kingdom, that that's later. Right now, I'm not delivering you in a military conquering style. This is not Jewish militarism that I'm doing now. Jesus says, I'm go- My, he says what he's doing now is seeking and saving those who are lost. That's what it says in verse 10. That's the part they overlooked. They didn't hear it because they wanted to hear the save part. And they attached the save part. They saw that as a military deliverance. Jesus' saving was different than that. And there will someday be a military deliverance, a very physical, very literal military deliverance. The, 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 the benevolent king, he will reign over all of the earth in a way that's wonderful and beautiful. He will wipe out of the earth the curse. He will take the curse away from the earth. He will take the effects of sin away from the earth. He will reign in in wonderful benevolence over the entire earth and everyone will appreciate who he is and honor him for who he is. That will be a wonderful time. Will you be there? Are you going to be a part of that? Are you included in that? Do you know the king? Does the king know you? That's the question. There are three kinds of people here today. They're all found in Jesus' story. There are real, true, faithful servants. They're the enemies of Christ and there are people that say they're faithful servants but they're really not and they don't know him. That's a frightening thing when you think about it. When the king returns, there will be a kingdom. When the king returns, there will be an accounting. When the king returns, there will be rewards, unspeakable rewards for those who are faithful. When the king returns, there will be swift, severe, final judgments. And I won't give you all the details of how that will work, but those things will happen after the king returns. So here I have questions for you. Number one, are you faithfully occupied in the king's business? Not social justice, economic reform, Jewish triumphalism, but seeking souls one at a time who are lost in sin. That's what this church has always been about. And by the grace of God and with his help and by the power of his Holy Spirit among his people here, let's see to it that until Jesus comes back, that's what this church is always about. On this wonderful corner, this thoroughfare where God has placed us, calling out in love to people, you can be free from your guilt and you can be free from your sin and you can be free from your bondage. You can have a new life. You can have eternal life. You don't have to go on to hell away from God. That's what all of our members ought to be doing every day. Hey, that's investment. That's what it means. When Jesus said, I'm giving you some money. See what you do. It's not just about how you use your money, though that's included. It's about what you do with the stewardship of the kingdom. It's, it's how you tell who's who. The people who really know and love the king take what the king has given them, and they go out and they do kingdom things anticipating his return. It's, it's like... It's like if um, we were given a $10,000 bill, never seen one, I don't even know if they exist, a $10,000 bill, and, and, we, and, and what if the, a, a, a leader said, here's a $10,000 bill, I want you to be willing to give it to the cause, and you say, I'm willing to do that, you would just lay it down in one great act of sacrificial devotion, you didn't keep it for yourself. But it's not really what Jesus is saying here, he's just like he said, 
I'm going to take the $10,000 bill to the bank and I'm going to cash it and it's going to be given back to you in quarters. And then every day of your life, I want you to find some kingdom business to do. Some small, simple way, wherever you are, to show your loyalty to Jesus Christ. To tell the person who uses Jesus' name in vain how much you adore Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ could mean to them. To take the time to talk to that little boy who's such a troublesome little boy in the Sunday school or in the Awana. Because you have loyalty to the king. And this little person could be a person who's loyal to the king and give honor to the king. To spend time when nobody knows it, cleaning up a mess nobody knows happens. So somebody else doesn't have to do it. You're investing in the kingdom. Nobody knows it. Nobody sees it but Jesus. What is it that you do that nobody knows and that nobody sees. What are you like when you're all alone and you don't think anybody's looking and the king is absent? That will tell us where your loyalties really are. When we look through your checkbook, when we look through your internet history, when, 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 and Jesus doesn't have to do any of that stuff because he sees right into the very depths of all of our hearts. It, he's so wonderful. He's so beautiful. He's so benevolent that he's so, he's so worthy that we should make our investments of our life giving and serving and loving and building a kingdom. I had a friend, a millionaire, not, not a millionaire. I guess to be a millionaire, you have to inherit a million dollars, right? What, is he, what do you call a guy who's a millionaire, million-dollar worker, earner guy? Very fortunate, I suppose you call him. He was a young guy my age. I, that was a while ago. And he had a lot of money. And... Uh, he, he, bought, he bought the Gerber mansion there in Fremont, and he had a lot of money. He had these businesses, and the, the one that was the big, you know, golden goose business and the other businesses that had spun off of that one. And he told me, he said, Pastor, I don't read books. I didn't even graduate from college. I said, well, you know, after you got to know him a little bit, you say, well, you're doing pretty well. How did that happen? And it's a long story. I'll tell you sometime to illustrate something else. But... The short version is his wife actually had saved up. They lived in a house trailer, and he didn't know it, but his wife had actually quietly saved up $10,000 to invest in a business idea that would come along. And he always had these kind of harebrained business ideas that, that really weren't very workable, and she, she, never, she never endorsed those. She would always say, I don't think it's a good idea, Greg. And then finally when he came up with a really good idea, she says, let's do it. And he says, well, I'm kind of depressed because I know it would work, but I don't have any money. And she says, well, we do have $10,000. Now, my little story is an analogy that breaks quickly down, but there's a little beautiful shred of truth in it. Lori loved her husband, Greg. Lori believed in her husband, Greg. Lori set aside other things because she said, one day I'm going to help him to be very successful. Jesus is a noble king. He's a worthy king. Do you know him? Do you love him? There's a period of time here that we have an opportunity to set aside other things so that we can invest in a kingdom. And someday if we don't do that, we're going to regret it. I, I, I have a little song here. I guess I'll read it to you. I was going to sing it to you, but I guess I'll read it to you. Have you ever heard this one? By and by, when I look on his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face, by and by, when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. By and by, when he holds out his hands, welcoming hands, nail-riven hands, by and by, when he holds out his hands, I wish I had given him more. 
In the light of that heavenly place, light from his face, beautiful, beautiful face, in the light of that heavenly place, I will wish I had given him more, more, so much more treasures unbounded for him who I adore. By and by, when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. Are you faithfully occupied in kingdom business? Second question, are you claiming to be loyal subject but making no investment? Because if you're not, if you're not laboring in the kingdom, you can't say that you're really a loyal subject of the king. You can't say you really know him. You can't say you really know him. You're in, le- in the very least, you're in a very dangerous position. And if, it makes me thoughtful to think how many folks we have here. And I wonder who's who. God really knows, and the end will show who really is who. But the telling thing will be, if you knew the king, and if you loved the king, no question you will make investments in the king and in the kingdom out of your love and your loyalty to him. And if you don't make investments in the king and in the kingdom, he'll take that little opportunity, that little, that little, that little hint of truth that you had, he will take that away from you, and you'll have no part in the kingdom my friend listen it does not matter how it doesn't matter how you're related to the church friend your dear one it doesn't matter how you're related to the church it doesn't matter you're many are familiar with they're familiar with religious things they can say all the right stuff they they've been to lots of meetings and they kind of have an evangelical glow about them. They're sort of like, yeah, they're, yeah, you know all the stuff. You've heard it, but you know, it never makes your heart be fast. You don't get up in the morning dreaming about what you can do for the Lord. You don't go to bed at night with the, with the Lord Jesus on your heart. How, you, you're not in love with the King. Listen, I don't want to judge you, but make sure you really know the King. I believe many people are familiar with the things of the kingdom, but they do not know the King, you see. They're familiar, but they don't know the King. There is a kind of an association with the church, a familiarity with the church, a familiarity with the Bible. You're familiar with religious things, but there's no love relationship with the king. There's no great loyalty to the king. Wherever the life of God exists, there has to be a great loyalty to the king and a desire to serve the king. And where that is absent, Jesus is saying in a very, in a very sweet way, in his story, in a very direct way, Jesus is saying in his story, those people who had all kind of outward, you know, they, they didn't say they were the enemies of the king. And, and they were willing when the king said, gave them a stewardship, they were willing to take that stewardship, but they really didn't do anything with it. Those people have no place in the kingdom, and what they even had would be taken away from them. That's what Jesus said. They didn't understand who he was. I wouldn't want to be there. I don't want to be there. It's a humbling to me to read this story and to think, oh, Lord, what category am I in? Do I preach because I get a lot of attention? Because people pay me? What do I do that I do just because Jesus is the king? Have you had a thought like that? Why do you give what you give? Say what you say. Don't say what you don't say. Do you ask yourself the question, is this because Jesus is the king, or is there some other motive? And if I misunderstood who the king is, and will I find myself with empty hands in the end, when a day of reckoning comes, wouldn't this inspire great holiness in the, in the people of God? 
that comes out of a, not out of a servile obedience and fear, but, but, but it comes out of a, a recognition that they serve, that we serve a severe and holy God and a recognition of His great benevolence, His great love. Wouldn't that make God's people holy? And if God's people who say they're God's people are not holy, how can we say that they are connected vitally through the Spirit with the King? How can we say these people are connected vitally through the Spirit with the King if in their life there's an absence of holiness that the Bible says will always be present when people really are connected with the King? Examine yourself and make sure that you really know the King. No matter how much you are familiar with Christian things, see to it that you have an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ yourself. Are you an enemy of the king? Is he your king? I want to end with words that are not my own. There was a dear man, I'm sure many of you have heard this. He was an African-American preacher, S.M. Lockridge, from San Diego. He came to Detroit in 1976, and they captured a recording of something he said. I probably should play it to you. You can get on the internet, and you can listen to it, but I'm going to read it to you, and I want to leave you with this question ringing in your heart. He said this, my king was born a king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He is the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of glory. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is the only one of whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He is the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem for the higher critics. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's a superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. That's my king. Do you know him? My king is the king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes, the leader of the legislators, the overseer of overcomers, the governor of governors, prince of princes, king of kings, lord of lords. That's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He is indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. 
I'm coming to tell you this, that the heaven of heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Don't you wish you had a preacher like that? Amen. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. All the power belongs to my king. All the glory belongs to my king. All the prestige belongs to my king. And it always will forever and forever and forever. But here's the question. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Heavenly Father, we pray, O God, that You would work among the people that are gathered here today, that they would know You. Lord, I ask that You would help us those of us who profess loyalty to you, as we do all the time, singing songs and naming your name and reading the Bible and saying that we're Christians and saying to everybody we're born again, bumper stickers on the bumper and Christian songs on the radio. Oh, Lord, help us, I pray. Help us, I pray, not out of servile fear, but out of great loyalty and great love and sincere relationship with you. Lord, help us, I pray, to serve, not because people are looking, not because people are paying us, not because somebody's going to say something good about us, but because you're the king. Help us, I pray, I pray. Lord, for those that are here today who, who are all, have all kinds of things about them that seem Christian, but down deep inside, there are no eternal investments being made. Expose them to themselves, I pray, that they would seek you out and find you. And oh, for your enemies, I pray that you would make them your friends. With your heads bowed. And with your eyes closed, we're going to close here in a song. I'm going to ask my wife to join me here at the communion table. And we're, we're going to wait after the service for those of you who have any questions. If we can give you counsel or direct you to counsel after the service, what we'd like to do now is to close in a song. And so if you would stand, the Pastor Pine will come and lead us in a closing song.